Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on February 13th, 2018, approximately 4pm uh, London time. As always, if you want to find out more about uh, the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc, and, and follow us on Twitter at tercuel, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. So, I am very happy and honoured to be uh, joined on today's podcast by my, uh, my former colleague and friend, not former friend, current friend, uh, Dr. Joel Busher. Joel is a research fellow at the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University. Joel's research examines the social ecology of political violence and anti-minority politics, the implementation of counter-terrorism policy and its societal impacts and mobilisation around national and transnational identities. Alongside publications in leading academic journals, his book, The Making of Anti-Muslim Protest, Grassroots Activism in the English Defence League, was joint winner of the British Sociolo Sociological Association's Philip Abrams Memorial Prize in 2016. And we're going to be discussing that book later on in today's podcast. His current research includes the internal breaks on violent escalation, analysis of how intergroup dynamics can inhibit the use of political violence. He's doing that research with Donald Holbrook, Holbrook and Graham Matlin, with this is funded by uh, Crest slash ESRC. Uh, what prevent duty means for schools, colleges in England, an analysis of educationalist experience. Another piece that we're going to be uh, talking about uh, later on is more of his uh, current research and also Costa del Brexit, a longitudinal study of how Brexit is playing out in British expat communities in Spain, which is funded by the British Academy Lever Hume Trust. That uh, piece on prevent duty was funded by the Aziz Foundation. So, Joel, thanks for being on today's pod. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. How did you get involved in uh, in this area of research? Well, well, it's it's uh, it's a bit of a recurring theme on uh, on these podcasts. It seems um, to say that I I fell into it um, in, in in some respects. Um, my sort of academic training was in sort of quite a different area, really. Uh, but after terminating, well, after completing my PhD and and being in desperate need of paid employment, uh, I spent uh, a short while working in the civil service. Mm -hmm. And whilst working there, I found myself working on some projects, really looking at the evidence base around um, processes of radicalization. Um, and from there, an opportunity came up to undertake a piece of research uh, based at the University of East London, for which I'm very grateful. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I applied for the post and was, was offered a post here. Um, but it was really that time in, in the civil service um, at the Defence Science Technology Laboratory, DSTL, uh, that sort of brought me into contact with this area of work. Um, and then, yeah, like I say, sort of took up the opportunity to, to follow that through in a, in a postdoc post uh, here at UEL under the tutelage of Anthony Richards. Mm. So. And what was that, that postdoc post? What were, you, what were you looking at in that? Well, so, I mean, that post they were in, what they wanted, my understanding of what they wanted was for somebody to um, take some looking at how people get involved with uh, radical movements, groups that uh, aren't necessarily engaged in political violence, but 
um, who are sort of part of that dynamic of, of, of radicalization. Um, at the time, uh, that was back in 2010, uh, at that time the English Defence League was a group attracting quite a bit of attention, um, both sort of in and of itself, but also in terms of the way that it was playing into sort of dynamics of what some people have called reciprocal radicalization, cumulative extremism. Um, and so there's quite a bit of interest in, in that organization uh, and those types of organizations. Um, and uh, yeah, so when I arrived, I, I spoke with, with, with Anthony, with, with, with Andrew Silk um, about developing some, some work looking at the English Defence League, really at, at the grassroots of, of that organisation. Mm. And that's, it's that research that would uh, go on to, to become a huge part of, the, of your book, The Making of Anti-Muslim exactly. Protests. Yeah. But before we get on to that, I, as, I, as the listeners will know, um, I'd like to discuss what research by others has influenced you. And yeah, you've put forward the piece by Roger Hewitt, White Backlash and the Politics of Multiculturalism. Yeah. You can really see this influencing your, your research on the EDL here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's there's a fairly sort of clear sort of uh, uh, sort of impact of, of, of his work on, on, on what I tried to do. Um, I mean, the, it was actually when I was working in government that I, that I first picked up uh, Roger Hewitt's book. And one of the things that really really sort of grabbed me about it was the way that he used such a rich ethnography mm. um, to to get inside a, a really kind of multifaceted um, sort of set of issues. And you know one of the things that I liked about about his book was the way that he surfaced the way that um, political tension and conflict intersects with, a wider set of social changes taking place, um, the way that uh, you know, if you like, anti-racism efforts to challenge racism actually, in some ways, inadvertently played into the narratives and strategies of, of some of the groups trying to um, sort of fan racial tensions um, in, in East London. Um, the way that sort of good intentions can can go wrong mm. um and the way that also you know there's i think one of the the the, the really kind of sort of quite beautiful things in in, in his writing is that you know, there aren't sort of good guys and bad guys you know it's uh, and, and that's something that really that really drew me to to his work because it doesn't it doesn't simplify it doesn't lend itself to any kind of sort of um sort of simplifying account of, of, uh, of what he was seeing on the ground. Yeah, and like you can really see this, uh, this nuanced understanding of the individual and, and the groups really coming through uh, in, your, in your piece as well, in, the, in that excellent award-winning book. <laughs> now. So how, like you, you talk about Hewitt's uh, ethnographic approach, you borrow a lot from this for your in in your approach as well. So how how was how was Hewitt doing his work his research and how did that influence uh, the way that you went on doing yours as well? Well, so I mean, I think one of the great strengths of Roger Hewitt's book um, is the focus on place and the importance of place in in shaping the dynamics of of conflict and tensions and. And how that plays out, and, and I think you know, it's something we'll we'll pick up later. And I know that you know you and I have worked on together. 
Um, this idea about how conflict tension plays out differently across different spaces within the same locality even. Um, and so that was, you know, to me, one of the great strengths of, of Roger Hewitt's work. I mean, I, so my PhD research was also ethnographic research, very different context. Mm -hmm. that was, so my, my doctoral research was about community-based HIV and AIDS programs on the Namibia-Angola border. Um, but actually for that as well, place and how different actors construct place and construct their relationship to place um, and construct, if you like, their, their credibility within quite localised communities. Um, but, you know, those are all themes that were very relevant in, in my work. You know, I had the, the good fortune to be trained by, um, by a couple of really, you know, excellent ethnographers mm. um, when I was doing my, my doctoral research. Um, and so if you like, I was already attuned to that, already had an interest in that. So obviously encountering something, um, you know, a piece of work like, like, like Roger Hewitt's really, really inspired me, but also sort of spoke to those prior interests mm. and, and uh, experiences. And we're going to talk about those prior interests later on, when, especially when we're looking at, um, we're looking at the, the Deborah Gould uh, piece that you, mm -hmm. you've also picked out. But I think the Hewitt piece really lends itself to leading into yeah. a deeper discussion about that book of yours, The Making of Anti-Muslim Protest. Now, before we get into the book itself, we've got a, luckily we've got a, an international listenership here, and not everyone listening would yeah. be aware of who yeah. the English Defence yeah. League are. So yeah. for, the, for those who don't know them, who are the English Defence League? I'm, like, this is talking terror this mm -hmm. is a podcast that looks at terrorism would you clap like these aren't these aren't a terrorist group so no I, no what, <laughs> what, like, but this yeah. that's important to note at the beginning yeah. as well so how would you classify them and who are they what are their aims and what have they done yeah so uh so the english defense league is a street movement um i, I i've tended to describe them as an anti-muslim protest movement um that emerged in 2009 um from a series of, of very localised demonstrations initially in, in, in Luton um, and that sort of gained traction nationally and, and mobilised really their sort of their sort of modus operandi was big street demonstrations so there was a period of during sort of late 2009 through to sort of mid 2011 when they were often getting sort of you know 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 people out on the street um, it was a, a, a bit of a, an admixture, really, of, of people involved with the organisation. Um, their initial mobilisation had been largely through um, football networks, so a lot of people had been drawn into, into the deal who had previously been involved with, with football violence. Um, it did attract some people who were from the more sort of convention, if you like, extreme right uh, organisations. Um, it attracted people from the so-called counter-jihad movement. Um, it also drew in people who hadn't previously been engaged in, in, in forms of, of protest. Um, I mean, I don't think, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's particularly helpful to think of them as, as a, well, I definitely don't think they're a terrorist organisation, you know, they never advocated um, using, using those kinds of strategies of action. Um, there's been quite a lively debate about how to categorise them ideologically. Mm. Um, I've tended to refer to them as an anti-Muslim protest movement for the simple reason that 
that is the, if, if you like, the definition that enables me to do what I want to do as an ethnographer, which is to try to get inside and understand um, the sort of the emergent worldview and experience of, of, of those activists. Mm. And so talk to us about your ethnography with this group. So what exactly, what exactly did you, did you do? What yeah. were you, what, what form did your ethnography take? In this yeah, so the, the ethnography was, uh, well, so it started up really in the autumn of 2010. I first made contact with um, some local English Defence League activists, you know, local to University of East London. Um, when I was put in contact with them via, via a couple of people um, who are acknowledged in the book, but people like Jamie Bartlett, who had mm. had some engagement with, with, with some of these activists and were able to put me in contact uh, with, with gatekeepers. Those gatekeepers then came and spoke to me. Um, and essentially interviewed me about you know what I want to do and, and, and my research as I explained to them and you know as I still say was really about how has this group managed to sustain itself in, in the face of quite considerable opposition mm. um, you know it, it's not particularly it's, it's not a group that ever attracted particularly favorable media mm. you know by and large um, and, and so I was interested in how they had managed to sort of bring together this like I say, a mixture of people with different interests and how how they uh, how they managed to make that work. The the research comprised of spending really a lot of time with activists, um, mainly in London, also along the south coast, primarily. Um, spending time with them at, at demonstrations, at, at, at sort of group meetings, informal activities, social events, um, and then a series of interviews as well um, with with activists. And that that ethnography took place over over about just on well, about eighteen months. It's quite hard to sort of define the end yeah. of the field work period because you sort of withdraw from the field gradually. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, so it involved that kind of close encounter with with activists over over an extended period. And what would you like? It's there's so much within this book that you could draw on. But what would you see as the the key take home findings from this for you? Um, what, what, what are the key messages for? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, some of them, again, I think re reiterate some of the, the themes from this, this series of, of, of podcasts. Um, so some of those are about the, the diversity of routes into and through um, these types of organisations. You know, there, there wasn't a profile, there were, there were a series of alternate pathways through which people became involved with these types of organizations through you know, involved with the English Defence League and their experience of it was 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 quite different um, the heterogeneity within the movement the tensions within the movement um, and actually exploring those has been part of what has led me to doing the, the current research that you mentioned uh, the current crest research on the internal breaks on, on violent escalation and so looking at how different factions within this organization interact with one another um, has been, you know, really, really interesting for me. The um, certainly for me, some of the uh, the way that activism changes people, um, you know, and, and and the fact the fact that you you can't have this sort of model that says people get people join activism because they get a particular good, mm -hmm. you know, actually what people are trying to get out of activism changes over time. And so this idea that people, that you can have a fairly sort of static model about what attracts people to activism, you know, work like 
like my book, but also by by other people. I mean, I'm thinking about other very good um, ethnographies of, of English defence, like Hillary Pilkington's work, for example. You know, really sort of lay that fairly bare. You know, that actually people's goals, people's ideas, people's aspirations change as they're moving through the, these types of organisations. What what way you you talked about tensions within the organisation? Mm. What what forms did these tensions take, and what were what was behind the tension there? Well, so the, the the tensions are a number of 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 different things, and I dedicate a whole chapter to exploring how the, the English Defence League really started to unravel. I, I mean, I don't claim any credit for it, but essentially, shortly after I got involved with the EDL, it it, it began to pull itself apart. Um, so yes, it was, that was from about let me say. Early to mid twenty eleven, the English Defence League essentially started these these the these well your expert area John Split started to started to emerge. Um, particularly so in in April of two thousand and eleven, this this becomes very apparent with a with a fight between um, between Tommy Robinson, who was the 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 spokesperson for the English Defence League and, and the leader of another faction. Um, there are a number of things underlying those those splits, as as you well know, is, is, is over these organisations, and some of those were to do with differences in opinion over tactics. Some of those were to do with different sort of interests. I'm slightly cautious about using the word ideology because yeah. you know I'm, I think while arguably some activists very much had developed and worked on developing what we might really call an ideology for others, it was more of a sort of a, a series of interests and grievances that I'm not quite sure worked into a sort of a coherent ideology, if you like. Um, regional tensions, uh, you know, one of the extraordinary things with the English Defence League, one of the things that I think made it interesting is that, and certainly one of the reasons why uh, people within the police, for example, were quite surprised that it managed to hold together in the way that it did for as long as it did, is that you had these tensions between different um, different sort of football firms, essentially, that uh, that bubbled back up to the surface. Um, so you had sort of regional tensions coming through, and then personal tensions. You know, and, and again, this is this isn't unique to the English Defence League or these type, you know, or, or, or you know, anti-minority protest groups. It's it's a fairly common thing. Personal tensions, personal rivalries, uh, rumours about about money. Quite often, you know, so and so had borrowed. 20 quid during a demonstration, they hadn't paid it back. Yeah. And, and you would find fallings out that you couldn't get to the bottom of. You know, people had just, there'd been a falling out over something six months ago and, and, and the sort of the one thing had led to another and, and, and you got this sort of, you know, sort of breakdown of the, of the cohesion of the movement. Yeah. Like the, these normal human interactions is, I think it's really what sets this aside from, from other books, other similar, similar books, is that it's not just focusing on that, on, on what the aims of the group are, the stated aims, it's showing what it actually means to be involved in this group. And that's, I think that's where the great success of, of, of this book is. It gives an insight into a, into human, uh, into a collection of, of people interacting with each other and seeing those normal everyday human mm. interactions, even taking away what the, the overall yeah. purpose of the group is. And I, it's, I think that's a hugely important insight that we sometimes yeah. ignore or miss as well. Yeah, the sort of the, the messiness of, 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 of 
of all of these types of organizations exactly. right yeah. exactly yeah. and before like i've seen you uh we've we've talked about about this research uh, over the past number of years and i've always been intrigued that you would always go back then to uh research that you would have read during your PhD and the research mm. that I mentioned earlier, the research of Deborah Gould, her piece, Moving Politics, Emotion and Act Up's Fight Against AIDS. How does this <laughs> come to inform how you would look at your results from, from your ethnography of the EDL? Yeah, well, um, so I mean, Deborah Gould's book, I, I unfortunately only picked it up as I was finishing off my PhD. Um, because it's 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 a it's a tremendous piece of research, um, not just because of the the sort of the richness of the ethnographic material, um, but the sort of the the sort of the, the the boldness really of the of the theory that she tries to develop around around emotion and the role of emotion in in, in politics and in and in movements, um, and the, the the idea she develops of emotional habitus and how this. Um, the, the shapes and trajectory of, of movements uh, and the way that that changes during the life course of a movement. And I think that's one of the things that uh, was hugely influential that really helped me when I was looking at, at my data on the English Defence League. In fact, I, I remember sitting down and looking at this data and trying to work out how I tell this story about how when I became uh, you know, sort of engaged with the English Defence League to do this ethnography, there was this really sense of an upward swing. There was this optimism. People were excited. You know, I would meet up with them and, and I would get messages telling me about what they were planning to do. Wildly optimistic, you know, <laughs> these ideas about... Uh, there, there was always a story about, you know, we've, we've got a, 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 a big-name politician coming on board, we've got a big-name lawyer coming on board, all these sorts of... And, and you know, very excited. And then you get this switch that happens, and it happens initially kind of almost imperceptibly but then it gathers momentum and all of a sudden you find yourself in a very different emotional space and that has an impact for everything that has an impact for how people plan actions it has an impact for um, who they include when they're preparing to do an action it has an impact for how they see themselves it has an impact for how they see their opponents and how they see rival groups and and it's that sort of switch in the sort of emotional in, in, in the emotional mood really of the of the movement. And I was looking at my data, thinking, how, how do I how do I make sense of this? And then I remembered this this book that I'd read as I was completing my PhD, which was Deborah Gould's book, and and something similar that she had explored within the um, within the HIV and AIDS movement in 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 the US, uh, and this change that happens within. Um, within the emotional mood of, of of the organization and how that was related to you know changes in, in resource availability so she talks about you know this switch into a, 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 a mentality a sort of a scarcity mentality and how that has this sort of devastating effect on on relationships within within the organ within the movement mm. and actually you know when I went back and read that and then brought that back to bear on the on the English Defense League data that I had you know, I could really see that that standing out and that that scarcity mentality. You know, sudden scarcity both in terms of support, in terms of in terms of resources, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of skills. Um, but but all of that sort of bore heavy on the weighed heavy on the decisions um, being taken by activists. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about the actions that they're involved in 
what exactly were they doing? Yeah, so well, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Sorry, I should have probably said, said a bit more um, about that earlier on. So with, with the English Defence League, they, the, as I said, their main modus operandi was marches, so having protests um, in, in, in city centres. Mm-hmm. Not huge numbers, but um, because it was seen as a significant public order risk, it often um, had the implication of requiring or there was often very large sort of police responses mm. to, to, to manage those protests. Also, counter-demonstrations, and, and again, you know, to manage the potential interactions between counter-demonstrations and demonstrations. Yeah. So, so that was the sort of the, the, the main strategy, and you know, those, those protests were used to apply pressure to local authorities that, you know, bearing in mind this is, this is the period, well, the, you know, the early period of austerity, mm-hmm. um, local authority budgets, police budgets under severe pressure, and activists within within the English Defence League know that they that, that this is a source of of anxiety. You know they can, you know, if the if they have to if the police have to spend half a million pounds in managing a protest, that's a major dent in you know in, in the budget for all the police forces. And so that was one of their main modus operandi. They were also very active on social media, um, so a lot of really sort of information dissemination, that, that sort of stuff on, on, on social media. But there are other activities as well that were that were going on. Um, so some of them were were more informal, so so-called flash demonstrations. So the, the formal demonstrations, they would speak in advance with the police, they'd be liaison with the police about that for local authorities. Flash demonstrations were much smaller numbers of activists. And the idea of that was often to sort of get close up to, sort of get in the face of, um, often opposition, occasionally to try to have more contact with the public, but mm. it's often focused more on, on, on sort of disrupting opponents. Um, some of the activists who I knew were um, were involved with things like trying to um, trying to run mosque boy. Um, what do you call it? To, to stop the construction of new mosques, mm. for example. Um, there was an, an, a, a fairly unsuccessful attempt at one point to create a, a boycott of halal. Restaurants now that never really got off the ground. Um, yeah, those were the sort of the main. And did main you activities. did you see much um, much violence or the desire for violence by by members? So, so some activists, some people who got involved, were probably sort of attracted by the the possibility of being involved in in violence. Um, so there were always some act, act, activists who. Uh, were were excited by enthused by um, violence, but but there were always activists who weren't. Mm. Uh, and again, I think this is one of the things that I was really keen to um, to bring through in the book, uh, and then you know, subsequent stuff I've written about the English Defence League, which is that the idea of this is a violence organisation is, is problematic because mm. there are some activists who, who were never involved mm. um, with violence uh, who, who, and who pretty consistently tried to inhibit um, the violence of some of their co-activists. Um, so, yeah, so th- there were occasions where, where I saw violence, um, but, uh, but there were also activities where there was almost no policing mm. And violence didn't happen, yeah. and that's you know, for me, that's partly what's intriguing about these types of organisations is that there's some violence happens, some violence, and sometimes violence doesn't happen, and, and and why is it that that we see, you know, these um, 
these these differences across different activity, you know, across different actions, even across different demonstrations. Yeah. And to you, like, so we're we're talking about within the group itself here and the the violence or the non-violence uh, within the group. But you mentioned previously the influence of Tommy Robinson, mm. and we're seeing him now in really in recent weeks in the wake of the Darren Osborne case, uh, his influence being questioned, whether his, his public iterations have inspired other, others to engage in violence and to engage in mm. terrorist violence as well. How do you, how do you view that? I know it's outside the remit of yeah. the book itself, but it's what's followed on. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a difficult question, um, and it it's it's always difficult when people are, are claiming inspiration because mm. um, I mean, certainly Tommy Robinson himself, and probably quite a few of the people close to him, would say, "Well, we would have no intention." Of of that ever being being taken up, mm -hmm. um, so they would. I mean, I I was spending time with the English Defence League at the time of the of uh, of Brevik's killings in Oslo, in um, Oslo and in um, in, in Otoya. and um, at the time, most of the activists who I spoke with, and I you know, I saw them all during the week after that expressed shock, expressed revulsion and, and anger and frustration. Um, and some of that was about the fact that, well, this is making us look bad. So some of it, if you like, was sort of strategic. Um, but I think some of it was, was also, as I say, revulsion. Some of it was also that sense of, you know, that's, that's not us. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, I think there's there's this challenge that, of course, people might think claim inspiration. Um, there's a question there, of course, about the responsibility that we take for the ideas that we that we circulate um, and how they get used. And uh, and again, I think this is one of the things um, that I try to pull out with that work, um, and that something relevant to the work that that we've done together um, is this idea about the points of connection of uh, of interaction between the, the sort of the so-called extreme and the so-called mainstream and, and and how they intersect with with one another in at different points and you know of course one of the recurring themes i think of the response of if you like sort of the political establishment to groups like the english defense league previously the bmp now britain first and so on and so forth is to sort of express horror and sort of say, well, this is you know, what an awful group of people, mm. and um, without recognising how some elements of what they say and what they do um, do get used, do get, do get drawn on, woven into the narratives of those groups. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that really stands out, or really stood out to me, um, looking at the communication in, in, involving English Defence League activists was so materials from the extreme right were conspicuous by their accent by their absence um you know very little from if you like sort of standard um e extreme right websites blogs and so on and so forth 
quite a lot of material from counter jihad websites, but also a lot of material simply from the mainstream media uh, being picked up and then sort of woven into their, their narratives. Now, that's not to say that the mainstream media are causing that, but it is to say that that material can be woven into a particular set of narratives that, that yeah, people within the mainstream media might be uncomfortable with. I, I don't know. But it's that sort of recognition that once you've, once you've said something, once you've, once you've done something, it, it's essentially out there. And one of the things I think about, about people is that they're pretty creative and they'll come up with ways of using that material to, to pursue their, their interests, their ends. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, that, that, you know, that, that's what we see with these, with these types of organisations and the way that they use material that's coming out of, out of the mainstream. And that's, you know, you know with the, in the case of the EDL, that was certainly one of the ways in which they fought back about claims that they were a racist or an extremist group. You know, they used that and said, well, look, all we're doing is sharing stuff from, you know, this newspaper and that newspaper. Yeah. For a lot of our our listeners especially our listeners in the in the US <clears throat> one of the groups at the moment who might be seen uh, in the same light as as the EDL uh, would be this group Britain First which mm. came to light came to to light in recent uh, months after the the retweet by Donald mm. Trump what's the relationship between Britain First and the EDL and where has there been intersections in the past, or has there been? Uh, it's quite a difficult question, actually. I'm, uh, I'm not sure how well qualified I am to okay. even to answer it, to be honest. Um, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of love lost between... I mean, you know, the, the, the English Defence League is more or less kind of gone now. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think there's a huge amount of, of, of love lost. You know, the Britain, Britain first came out of a out of people with a with a background in the British National Party. The, mm -hmm. the EDL tended to try not to have any association with with the BMP. Um, tried not to. Mm -hmm. um, so so yes, yeah, so, so I don't think uh, I'd be sort of slightly cautious about mm. sort of overstating any 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 sort of connection. They they mobilise around similar issues and they probably have resonance with um with sort of similar sort of networks of supporters but i think actually in terms of the activists but the, the reason i asked mm. is for is for exactly what you were saying because it's so easy oftentimes to just think okay it's similar ethos similar aims for these groups so therefore they must be connected yeah. there must be some uh some resonance between them like but uh it's not always the case and it's in a way it's lazy analysis to just say okay we've got britain first we've got the edl let's lump them together it must be the exact same motivations the exact same uh mm -hmm. things going on within the group but we just because there's that same end goal doesn't mean that that they that there's yeah no i'm not even sure to what extent they've got the same end goal i mean britain first has tended to emphasize far more Christian identity mm -hmm. and within the EDL I don't think there was a huge amount of emphasis placed on on Christian identity I, I've got a, one of my favorite footnotes in in the book is um, a conversation I had with with two activists and you know we, we, were, we were talking about about Christianity one said well you know I'm, I'm I'm not even a Christian you know I'm just Church of England <laughs> <laughs> 
And the answer, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Christian either. I don't even have turkey at Christmas. <laughs> but, it, but again, it's back to that sort of that sort of the, the normality of people, you know, it's kind of. A, but um, but yeah, you know, they, they didn't really sort of foreground, if you like, sort of Christian identities in, in the way that the, the Britain First did, and that was you know, very prominent within what Britain First was trying to do. They've also used sort of slightly different strategies of action. I mean, and I think one of the main barriers to them ever drawing support from groups like the English Defence League, particularly people who are active in the English Defence League, was that they didn't like Paul Golding, you know, they, and often it's these sort of personal rivalries that mean that groups can't really form yeah. um, alliances. And I think certainly one of the challenges for the whole scene in the last few years is actually who could they coalesce around, you know, which, which kind of people have the credibility to, to build up and uh, to sort of pull the movement or sort of the wider series of movements back together. Yeah. So you also talk about, you also said to me that as well as the Gould and as well as the Hewitt pieces, that you were influenced by the work of uh, Kathleen Blee, especially her piece, Democracy in the Making, How Activist, group form, how activist Groups Form. Um, what, what was this piece? How did this piece influence yeah. you? So, um, so, so the, probably the more famous book by, by Kathleen Blee is her work on, uh, on women in... Um, white nationalist movements in, mm. in the US um, and uh, and also you know, the, the, the multiple articles that she has written um, about doing research in extreme right movements um, and, and those were also important for me mm. um, really so, Kathy Blee's work, I think it's probably fair to say, kind of gave me the confidence to take the approach that I took. Uh, so, when I started doing that work, um, the assumption that most people made was that I was doing it undercover. And I always had to, it always took me a while to sort of explain, well, no, I'm not doing it undercover, you know, because I don't think it's necessary. I've, I've tried to do it without going doing it undercover because that's sort of in line with my. Sort of beliefs about how research should be done, um, and so uh, so that was sort of an aspiration. But sort of ha having the confidence to do that was quite challenging, particularly working in a field that I hadn't previously worked in. And then uh, so really, sort of Kathy Blee's work, particularly her work on white nationalist movements, was was, was really important for that. Um, also, sort of work by people like Pete Simme and, and, mm. and Robert Futrell. Um but the reason why I picked this book is partly because I'm guessing, perhaps wrongly, that fewer people who might listen to this will have heard of it. And it's just, it's such a wonderful book that the more people that hear about it, um, the better. Um, but also that it condenses some, it condenses and articulates some really sort of neat insights about how activist groups work. And it's, uh, as you'd expect by anything that, that, that Cathy Blue writes, is that it's you know, very, very clearly written, very beautifully written. You know, it's, um, it, it's, an, it's an enjoyable read, um, you know, full of really rich examples of, of, of what she's describing. In this book, she, um, rather than looking at established movements, she looks at movements or groups really that are coming together trying to, to try to make something happen, you know, groups of citizens that come together around an issue and try to mobilise. 
And she looks at how they try to get off the ground and the challenges that they face getting off the ground, um, which I think is so valuable because most of the time, by the time an organisation is considered worthy of research, it's normally well established, and we sort of lose those those origins, those those those, those sort of first steps. But those first steps are so important. I mean, most most organisations never get off the ground. Like most, mm -hmm. most activist groups never get off the ground. And so part of the, the beauty of this book is that it, it captures those, those early steps and those early struggles. Um, but in doing so, she really, yeah, like I say, sort of condenses out of that um, some, really, some really neat insights about, about what makes groups work and, and, and what they have to, the issues they have to manage, really. This, there's this idea that comes through of activism as, as a social achievement, you know, it's something that... And actually, it's, it's something, again, that goes back, resonates with me from my time doing work on international development, um, is this idea that you know, collective action is an achievement. Like, it's really bloody difficult. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you have to overcome so much. And, and so that's what, that's what she pulls, pulls through in that, in that book. Yeah. And it's, you can, excuse me, just clear my throat. You can also see that her work and her way of thinking uh, influencing the origins of the piece that we did together as well. Yeah. Like, and this is, it, this is a bit strange for me, actually, because normally I'm talking to people about their own research or their <laughs> research that inspired them, but now I'm going to have to talk to you about a piece of research that we did together. Um, this is a piece uh, forthcoming uh, called Micromoral Worlds of Contentious Politics, a reconceptualization of radical groups and their intersections with one another and the mainstream. This is something that we really, uh, we really got a snappy title to it anyway. So, <laughs> uh, so um, for the listener, like you were, actually, Is for anyone who heard that <laughs> knock on the door there, that was Anthony Richards, who will be a future podcast host. They actually, the origins of this came from a panel that he set up uh, where we were both at Biza. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's right. We were presenting on the same panel, and uh, I saw your paper, and I said, actually, this could fit with, with, with yeah. my stuff as well. So what were those origins? What, um, what was it that... Uh, that made you think about it, about this concept of micro viral worlds. Yeah, so um, I should be doing the interview to you now, John. So what, what inspired you? <laughs> yeah. so. I just thought this is an opportunity <laughs> to get to work with Joel. So yeah, go. The, um, so so the, the, the concept actually came out of my, my doctoral research. One of the things that fascinated me when I was um, working with community-based HIV and AIDS programs in, in Namibia was seeing HIV and AIDS workers operating across different contexts. Mm -hmm. So seeing how um, the way people spoke, the way people interacted changed from you know, when they were in a, uh, in, a, in a village meeting to when they were in a meeting with um, sort of volunteers and other members of staff compared with when they were doing presentations back to uh, international donors. And I was still trying to make sense of the different like sort of the different normative orders that, that, that emerged. And one of the things that was interesting for me was that people had this sense of, well, this is good practice in this space, but actually that might not work in this other space and therefore they enter into a different uh, sort of set, a different normative order in, in that other space. And in order to 
just to explain and understand that, um, I, I picked up some work by uh, a medical anthropologist. Um, my PhD supervisor was a medical anthropologist um, working on HIV AIDS programs in, in Uganda, Janet Seeley. Um, and Arthur Kleinman is, 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 is this, this anthropologist and, and he talks about local moral worlds. And so he, he talks about how um, people's experiences of, of, of the world around them, their interpretive frames, change as they move through the course of their everyday life between these, between these different spaces. So um, in, in his work, he talks about how people move between you know, the home as one domain into the workplace and then um, you know, perhaps into community organisations and actually how there are quite different ideas about what is right and wrong when, when they're moving across those different spaces. And what's, what was for me significant about um, his work is that it moves beyond the idea that there is, if you like, a real version of, of, of Joel. Mm. Uh, and there's one real version and, then, and the other versions is just me putting on a performance. To actually say, well, there might be one version where you feel more comfortable, more confident, more at one with yourself. But that's not to say that you're not still you in these other spaces. Um, and uh, so I, I, I sort of picked up that idea in, in the context of my, of my thesis. Um, and then it also seemed to be relevant when I was looking at, um, at the English Defence League, actually. And, and, and so there were... There, individuals who I knew uh, who behaved very differently in, in different contexts mm. and I, you know I, I wasn't happy I didn't feel sort of intellectually satisfied saying that well here they're just doing sort of front stage stuff and just putting on a performance and here you know this is the real them because I wasn't yeah I wasn't sure actually they were more comfortable with it mm. I think often they were putting on a performance to their fellow activists to try to look like the hard man to try to look like you know someone uh, to reckon with in that space and so the idea that this is the more real them and the less real them didn't really wash for me and so I was trying to make sense of that um, in a fairly sort of long-winded way <laughs> when I when I did the the presentation at, at, at BISA um, and yes you know and then, then obviously we got talking and I, I was trying to make sense of it in in my mind, it was pretty sort of unpolished, but actually once, and I wasn't particularly confident about it, um, but then obviously working through mm. your case study. Um, with Republican Sinn Féin. With Republican Sinn Féin, yeah. Mm. Um, really kind of helped to clarify actually the idea of, okay, well, well what do we mean by these different spaces and, mm. and, and, and how do people move between them? So. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it was a piece I, I, I think it's 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 actually quite an important pro thought process for you to go through as well to to sort of not just think about okay this is what this group is this is what this group means yeah. and this is what it means to be part of this group yeah. to see those different spaces there and to be able to acknowledge those different spaces I think it's it really opens up to opens you up to to thinking about these groups these groups in, in different ways yeah. and not just th seeing it as a homogenous group with a homogenous aim yeah. that there's 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 different meanings at different times to what it means to be within this group and to be acting within yeah. this group as well I think it's a uh, yeah I it, 
it was, uh, it, and it is, it's interesting to see when you've got a case like the EDL versus a case like Republican Sinn Féin, who were the political wing of the continuity IRA. Uh, we weren't looking at the, the violent group as, it, itself. Uh, we were looking at that, uh, that radical um, political wing. But to see that, yeah, there are similar, similar spaces for both, not identical, like, but uh, it's not all about one thing. And, and it's, uh, there's different norms within those different micro-moral worlds yeah. there as well. I, mean, I think that that's one of the things that's, that's very clear from and, and having the, the two movements side by side. I mean, yes, they're very different movements, but they, they both support that idea that, as you say, that the normative orders in those different spaces some of them are really different to yeah. one another, um, which, which is important. And I think one of the one of the things that attracted me to it uh, is something which I think is very topical at the moment, um, which is about well, how do we talk about the way that radical or extreme movements connect to sort of the wider political context and. Um, to avoid slipping into this sort of fairly lazy othering of, of of groups, just you know, well, that's a radical group, well, that's an extreme group, and actually saying, well, there are there are certain practices that they do in certain spaces that actually are just typical of, um, you know, any type of kind of community-based organisation. I mean, we 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 both talk about, for example, some of the fundraising activities that they do, um, these different organisations, and how they basically do the same as. You know the the bowls club do yeah. or the or what have you know we talk about swimming guys yeah char- <laughs> charity swims and yeah. stuff like that yeah so, you know and that and that's the kind of those overlaps are so important in terms of their understanding of themselves mm. um, and and yeah you know it, it's I think that that's important but then you can also see you know I think I think there's potential for looking at this from the other way around and actually looking at what we might consider to be more more mainstream groups, and actually looking at the range of space in which they operate, and finding points where some some of their practices, some of their normative orders, actually uh, really do overlap with 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 more radical, more extreme groups. Because I think that's um, yeah, you know, we we need to get away from imagining this sort of clean break between yeah. the sort of the extreme or radical groups and the mm-hmm. and the acceptable groups. Yeah, and it's. It's something that's been a theme throughout this podcast yeah. series. It's is that this. I feel that this paper is it. We I think what we were trying to do, and I think we we came close to succeeding, if not succeeding uh, <laughs> completely, was just showing a bit more nuance, a bit more of a nuanced understanding behind what these what it, these groups actually look not not quite look like, but what it means to be involved with them yeah. at different times and different spaces as well. Rather than yeah, just saying there's a clean break and the, it's it's there are grey areas there. There's different if there there are a lot of different spaces for these groups. I, th- I think that that point about time is really you know is a really valuable one because um, you know we, we often talk about groups radicalizing or groups de-radicalizing, um, but then. How do we pin that to what's going on in, in, in wider society yeah. at the time? Um, you know, and I think again, actually, a theme through this through through this series from the um, fr- from the podcast I've been listening to is 
how do you get that sort of contextualized understanding of what groups are doing? Because they're, they're never isolated, yeah. you know, so you need to sort of situate them within that, that political context at the time. And, um, you know, the very nature of, a word, of the concept of extremism is that it's a relational term. And so whenever we're talking about whether groups become more or less extreme, we, we always need to also be mooring that into what's going on within sort of wider society at that time. Um, yeah, and, and I, my hope is that the, the framework that we provide enables people to do that in actually in a fairly, methodolo- in a fairly sort of methodical way, mm. uh, a fairly systematic way, uh, and actually in a fairly transparent way. So. Where do we go from here with this? With the, with the micro-moral worlds um, con- concept and the, yeah. what, what we've been putting forward. Like, do, you see it, um, do you see it developing out into future research for us? Or? Well, I'd, I'd love to do some more empiri- empirically driven work um, using that, using that, 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 that concept. Um, I certainly think that, I mean, that would be interesting to, to try to, to refine it, yeah. um, but also to sort of see how it plays out in, in different types of, um, in different types of groups, in, in, in sort of more um, sort of acephalous, less acephalous groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be interesting to look at it across more different types of ideological yeah. um, groups. I think it'd be interesting, uh, and particularly looking at this idea about convergence and divergence between more extreme and less extreme groups. Now, I mean, it'd be wonderful to have some to use that to develop some longitudinal research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yes, you know, so it'd be it would be great to be able to to sort of put it into practice or, or even, you know, if, if someone else wants to put it into practice to be able to see how it's being used by other people, you know, I mean, mm. I, it, it is something I hope people are able to make use of. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a piece that I, I'm proud to have been part of. I think it's, it, it adds something. Um, I do have a lot of bias towards it though as well, <laughs> but it's, uh, no, I think, I think it's got a, I, I think we, I think we got a, an important message across within it. It's uh, well, I suppose the listeners and the readers will decide yeah. on that. It's it's going to be coming out in mobilization later on this yeah. year, but it's uh, it'll be interesting to hear the feedback and what people think. Yeah. But um, moving on from that okay. though, um, into that lo- on moving on from that love in now, <laughs> um, your final piece that we're going to focus on is. Um, what the prevent duty means for schools and colleges in England, an analysis of educationalists' experience. So this is it's quite different from the rest of the stuff that we were talking about. It is. What, what, what was this piece? Uh, who commissioned it? And what was the, the background to it? And what were you aiming for? Yeah, so, um, well, the, the who commissioned it? Well, no one really commissioned it. Mm. Um, it came out of... Uh, a, a series of, of conversations, as these things often do, um, with uh, with my co-authors, with Tafel Chowdhury and Paul Thomas, uh, in particular, and, and subsequently with Gareth uh, Gareth Harris. Um, so Tafel and I had had this thing of meeting each other and can- sort of coming into contact with one another in the US and Canada for, yeah. for whatever reason. Normally courtesy of um, events organized by Brett Kubitschek <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we sort of had this this series of conversations an interest really in how um, how prevent so sort of attempts to prevent violent extremism how they how they play out 
on the ground, you know, how they're interpreted, how they're enacted on the ground. Uh, I knew from having worked at Huddersfield University with Paul Thomas that this was an interest of, of Paul's. Um, mm-hmm. Paul and I had been involved with, with, with some other work um, for, for sort of three or four years. Um, and so I was at, a, at an event in, in Arlington, actually you were there as well, I think, and, and John Horgan and Paul Gale. Oh, and was, I remember it, yeah. yeah. Um, that was a few years ago now. Yeah, well, it was it was it had been twenty fifteen mm. because the the duty was just coming into into force the mm. prevent duty. Um, so the prevent duty um, requires that um, a number of different types of organisations, schools, colleges, universities, social care, healthcare, prisons, pay what is referred to as due regard to the um, to the risk of, of, of radicalisation. Uh, so radicalization towards participation in, in, in terrorism um, and when this was announced it was it was highly controversial I think it certainly attracted a lot of attention mm-hmm. from from those critical of of prevent you know prevent as, as probably I guess as most people listening to this will be aware has has been quite a, a controversial probably the most controversial strand of uh, the UK's counterterrorism strategy contest, mm-hmm. um, really since its since its inception, um, and the announcement of this duty really kind of drew a great deal of criticism uh, once again from a from a wide range of of actors, um, you know, sort of civil liberties groups, um, some some of the teaching unions, um, a sort of wider set of civil society organisations, academics who are. Who, who are, you know, and have been very critical of Prevent. Um, and so as this, this discussion was taking place about, you know, these are going to be the effects of, these are going to be the impacts of, 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 of the introduction of this duty. And um, Paul and Tafel and I sort of got together and said, well, let's see what, the impacts actually are you know can can we devise some research that actually tries to bottom out some of these um these assertions about what's going to happen mm. and uh and, and so we designed a, a research project uh initially we had wanted to do some work with educationalists so with with, with teachers, school leaders, college leaders, uh, sorry, college in this context is further education colleges, so sort of post-16. Yeah. I'm, I'm aware that it's a term that gets that means different things in different places. Um, so initially we wanted to do that, but and also some work with, with students, but it became clear very early on that that was probably going to be challenging, problematic perhaps. Um, the schools, colleges, the, you know, some of the teachers who we were speaking with just to sort of test out the idea were quite clearly sort of slightly apprehensive about <laughs> about the research. You know, it's very sensitive. I think quite a few schools and colleges were, were, were wondering, were worried about how it might how it might play out. They were very aware of the of the scrutiny um, around around the duty, uh, and so we just focused on um, on educationalists. Um, and uh, the Aziz Foundation um, and also the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations, where I'm based, were kind enough to um, to 
put together some funds to enable us to, to carry out the research. Um, we managed to get it up and running by March of 2016, which meant, and, so, and that ran from March through to, really through to early 2017. So what we were able to capture was the experiences of educationalists of the introduction of this duty uh, during the first sort of six to 18 months of, of, of the duty. Mm. And what, what do you feel were the, the, core, the core findings from this then as well? What, what would you say uh, was, would be the key message to take from this report? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, so one of the things that it intrigued us, we, we, we tried to make this very data-driven. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, I keep coming back to the themes from this uh, from this series of podcasts, John, mm. and, and I know that you know it's, this, it's just to prove that you've listened. It's, as well. it's, it's, yeah. um, you know this this aspiration for you know sort of data driven research in this area, and I think it's you know lots of people have emphasised that, and you know I would, I would add my voice to that. Um, we were really keen that this was driven by the data that we found, and, and so it was quite descriptive. Um, in some respects, and the report that we produced um, was quite descriptive. It was focused on how have um, teachers and other um, school and college staff interpreted, understood the duty, mm-hmm. um, how have they implemented the duty, um, and what impact do they think it has had on, on the school, on the college, uh, on the relationships between themselves and members of staff, students, parents, and so forth. And so really we, we, we set out what their experiences, what their perceptions have, have been. There are some, when we presented this, we're, we're very clear. We say, well, our findings can be interpreted quite differently. And because it's such a polarised debate often around, around prevent, certainly in the UK, and I think you know, from speaking with international colleagues, I think I think that's also the case in in a number of other countries mm. where most sort of PV programs have, at times had sort of quite sort of polarized political debates. Um, we said you know we're we're aware that these results might be interpreted quite differently by those who are broadly supportive of and those who are broadly opposed to um, prevent, uh, and it, and it did prove to be the case as I'll mention in a minute. But um, so I mean a, a few things came through from it. Um, some of the anxieties about the prevent duty and the impacts that it might have didn't really come through in the way that we might have expected to according to some of the criticisms that were being made of the prevent duty. So um, by and large, the people who we interviewed from the survey data, um, people were actually more confident about the prevent duty than than perhaps one might have expected. They, they became relatively confident with it. And that, and that was often um, because of the way that it was framed. And, and one of the key things we think about this sort of policy process was that the prevent duty was framed as an extension of existing safeguarding um, requirements. So the idea that sort of child protection requirements. And by framing it in that way, um, a lot of the staff, particularly more experienced staff, particularly staff with... Uh, experience of, of, of safeguarding of child protection 
sort of assimilated it into existing practices and so we sort of felt relatively comfortable um, with that. We also found, and this was one of the more surprising findings, um, so one of the concerns expressed was that it would lead to what the critics were saying, a, a, a chilling effect mm-hmm. on, um, on debates within classrooms, lecture theatres. And the staff that we spoke with weren't perceiving that. Some did, of course, and, and, and within all of these things, of course, there's, there's, there's variation. But, but by and large, we didn't get this sort of strong picture of, uh, of concerns about this chilling effect. In fact, um, we found staff saying, well, we've used this as an, as an opportunity to have more debates, more discussion around uh, sort of contentious political topics, which was really interesting and, of mm. course, was music to the ears of, um, of of people in government, people working in the in in, in the prevent sector. Um, of course, this is only the the perceptions and experiences of of staff. And as I say, there's some important variation there. There's important variation to explore. We think about the differences in experiences and perceptions of white staff, uh, BME staff, more experienced staff, less experienced staff. Um, so there are things there to be to be explored. So, so by and large, we didn't find this sort of blanket kind of negative uh, story, which is part of what makes this interesting. Mm. But at the same time, what we did find um, were widespread concerns that the duty might um, be feeding into or making it likely this, that more Muslim students feel stigmatised. And of course that's, that, that's a very worrying finding. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we, it's, it's what, what's, you know, what, we've, what we have are these sort of two stories sort of sat side by side. We also find uh, the cases really where you, the prevent duty is being used in a way that I don't think it was probably intended for. Um, so one of the concepts that emerges from the qualitative data is ideas about um, sort of appropriate and inappropriate behaviour and referrals being made, interventions happening around behaviours that are identified as being inappropriate mm-hmm. rather than necessarily uh, behaviours that are seen as evidence of someone moving towards violent extremism. The other thing that really comes through is concerns about effectiveness. And so a lot of the time people say, in particular in the qualitative data, people say, well, you know, yeah, we, we, people say this and students say that, but, you know, they're just, that's just kids being kids. It's kids, you know, uh, testing boundaries and saying something stupid. Um, but would we catch somebody, would we be able to identify somebody, people often spoke about genuine cases, the staff we spoke with, you know, a genuine case, someone who's, who'd been uh, been trained not to, um, be, been trained not to give signs and signals away to, to members of staff. So on, on the one hand, like I say, we get people being sort of confident with the process, people not being, if you like, sort of, People being fairly sort of morally confident because it's fitted within safeguarding, mm-hmm. we get that picture of we, okay, yes, 
the, the, this this duty comes in and we're using this to promote discussion but then we get this series of, of, of concerns and anxieties sat alongside them um, and that's really sort of the intriguing thing from from our from our data and um, and is why you know as I say it, it it's data that there's 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 something there for everyone. Yeah. You know, there's there, there, there's a lot to unpack there. We we think that 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 tension is actually sort of conceptually what what, what how we resolve that that tension is through ideas about uh, enactment and policy enactment and and the idea that policy is which comes from people like Stephen Ball mm. uh, and the idea that you know as policy sort of lands in institutions um, it, it becomes enacted performed situated within uh, existing practices um, and so some of the anxieties become become managed um, there's stuff that takes place around um, professional identity and the sort of sense that well actually you know I'm a good teacher uh, I work in a good school we're able to manage this yes hypothetically this is risky problematic but actually we manage it in this way and therefore it's, it's not an issue. So, that, you know, we think there's some sort of stuff going on there around policy enactment, professional identity. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's just, it's an intriguing set of data, really. Yeah, no, it really is. And it's really, it's really well presented. It's not like, as you say, a lot of it is, is quite descriptive and needs to be as well. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it gives a great insight Um beyond the speculation beyond the the media headlines of mm. of what the prevent duty means and and the enactment of it but uh yeah it's 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 a really really interesting piece and as with all of the pieces that were discussed here there's there's a link to this piece on uh, on Joe's profile on the the talking terror um section of our UEL website that's uel.ac.uk/terc um it's a freely accessible uh, report. This one, so you can yeah, um, yeah free to download. I, I would I would encourage everyone to, to have a look at it to uh, to download it and um, yeah, it's a it's a very informative piece. But you've indicated that you've listened to the podcast a few times, so you know what's coming next. And you're not a, actually you're not a traditional as we've heard. You're not a traditional terrorism researcher. And I don't know if I'd even class you as a terrorism researcher. Um, because looking like looking at your PhD, it's definitely not terrorism. There, looking at your research on the EDL, and uh, looking at our our piece on micro moral worlds, the closest is the the prevent duty, but it's yeah. not actually looking at terrorism yeah. itself. But um, you know the terrorism literature well, you know, as you you do a lot of of literatures. But how do you feel the the strength is of the overall terrorism literature at the moment, and in comparison to to the other fields that you would also know well. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, as you say, I don't have the familiarity with the literature around around terrorism as, uh, as some of your other guests. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a, a, an almost overwhelming array of research taking place at the moment. I mean, I, I for one, sort of struggle to keep up with, uh, with, with what's coming out at the moment. Um, I mean, I'm to be completely self-serving. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that really enriches the terrorism research is the amount of sort of intersection with other bodies of research, 
that, but that's not something new. I mean, you know, you go back to Paulette Max Taylor's work, you know, and that was enriched enormously by his work on on, on sex offenders yeah. and so forth. You know, so yeah. it's, it, it, I think that's, you know, if you look at the history of really good research on 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 terrorism, it's always had those connections with with other areas of research, and you know, long may it continue. Mm. Um, I think that's I think that's something really positive. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the one of the challenges, um, and I think this is where programs like, uh, and this isn't just me sucking up to to my funders, but um, this this is one of the areas where I think what Crest is doing is is really important, really valuable. Uh, is surfacing, bringing together ideas that could be relevant for terrorism research, for understanding um, terrorist organisations, you know, violent extremism that aren't necessarily always bracketed in that in that space um you know and there's there's so many great ideas out there that don't need a huge amount of money to 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 bear fruits yeah. and i think you know there there is a there is a challenge in 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 relatively resource scarce contexts or or, or contexts in which resources are often very concentrated mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you how do we make sure that we don't miss out on um, on those ideas? You know, and often early career researchers. You know, mm-hmm. how do we make sure that, that that we're picking up those those ideas? Um, and I think you know, the, you know like I say, in, you know, in the, in the UK context, Crest program has, has been a very uh, effective and valuable means of doing that. I know uh, people like TSAS have got program at the moment i think they've had a call they've just had out recently haven't they in, mm. in canada which again you know relatively small pots of money that um help to really bring out new ideas or, or help to translate ideas from other contexts into the domain of of, of research on terrorism mm. yeah i know it's uh I, I agree with you like it's, it's though a lot of those ideas uh like the one that yourself and Donald Holbrook and um, and Graham Macklin are doing that that idea of breaks uh, it it doesn't require that much funding mm-hmm. but it's it's helping those ideas come to come to fruition um, I think that's important yeah. and it's it's not all about asking the same question again and yeah. again it's not all about this the one idea again and again we have to we have to think about what else we need to ask yeah. and other aspects and like you can draw on stuff from your background and your your ethnographic research during your your PhD, which was nothing to do with mm-hmm. uh, with any of this. But to be able to draw on something like that and apply it here to yeah. whether it's to the EDL or to anywhere else, it's it's highly valuable. But uh, yeah, it's similar. Like you were talking about Crest and 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 TSAS and others. Yeah. You look at where Graham is at the moment with C-Rex yeah. as well, yeah. the work that's going to be coming out from there. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, it's very exciting. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's going to be, it's it's an exciting time, I think. Yeah. I think another, uh, well, another thing for those of us who are working in this kind of area, and, and it's something, going back to my sort of work in, in development studies and international development, you know, I think one of the shifts that has increasingly happened there which I think is enormously valuable, is sort of breaking away from sort of Western-centric learning mm. and the sort of this idea of sort of the research happening here, and even when it's about 
other places that it sort of comes back and the research yeah. happens here and yeah. actually you know one of a lot of the most innovative um pieces of, of of development studies research are based on practices knowledges that have actually come from from outside of europe and north america yeah. and, and i think that's that's again something for us to to explore and how do we how, how do we move beyond the yeah. sort of more Western-centric understanding? You can see that actually in a previous episode. It hasn't come out at the time that we're we're speaking, but in the episode that Michael Boyle did, he mm. talked about his forthcoming book, which is looking at non-Western responses to, yeah. to terrorism. I, we heard about it from Rashmi Singh in relation to India and George Lazar yeah. in relation to Brazil as well. Yeah, we really need to be engaging with yeah. that a lot more. But um, I think I think we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much. It's as been always, a pleasure. yeah, I know it's Thank been you. great having you, especially to be able to talk about something that I contributed to as well. With <laughs> everyone, read the Micro Moral Worlds piece when it comes out. That's the one piece to engage with. But no, thanks so much. Thank um, you, John. Be sure, as always, to follow us on Twitter at t e r c u e l. Tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror, and be sure to listen in next week. I'm trying to think who next week's guest is. Um, oh, it's it's Daniel Byman. Uh, so be sure to listen to that it promises to be an excellent episode as always a great really interesting uh, person with some great experiences to talk to and to talk about so once again thank you Joel and uh, talk to you all soon bye